Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to do this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You guys can be seated. Let's, let's pray. God, you are good. God, you are good. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning from your good word. Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of anything that you are um, wanting to speak to us this morning. So God, I ask that we would make much of you, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves, and that we would behold you, our true, good, good God. God, we love you. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, and may you make much of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Peter. That is where we're going to be at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing our study going through the book of uh, 1 Peter. Now, as some of you know, the past couple of weeks, I have been battling vertigo. 
my world has been spinning around. I've never had it before, but I woke up about two weeks ago on a Monday, uh, and I woke up, and all of a sudden, the room just spinning out of control. Uh, some of you have maybe experienced that before. It's, it's a very unsettling, helpless feeling, because for like two or three days, I just had to lay flat on my back and do nothing right? Do nothing. And so it was a hard couple of weeks. Now, I am improving, okay? I am. I have improved, so thank you for the prayers. Uh, occasionally, though, when I look a certain way or turn my head a certain way, it, the dizziness comes back. So if I end up having to sit on a stool, that is why. If I have to lay flat on the ground, if someone would just hand me my Bible and notes, and we will continue on, okay? Uh, but that is what is uh, uh, going on with me. Now, while the past couple of weeks have been really hard, and probably the hardest on Brit, because if we can be honest, I just haven't been very helpful at home. But the last couple of weeks, they have been really, really hard, but they've also been so good and so refreshing to my soul. Because you see, I had a lot of things that I wanted to get done for our church. I had a big list of to-do things that I was going to knock out and get accomplished for our church. And the Lord said, nope. You are going to lay flat, and we are going to talk. And so I could do nothing else except just pray and enjoy time with the Lord. And so while it was hard, I also feel very rejuvenated and refreshed, and I'm excited over the next few months to continue to share with you how God is stirring in my heart and how I can better lead and serve you and serve our church and how he's stirring that in other leaders' hearts here as well. So it's been good, but it's been hard. So thank you for the prayers. Thank you for rallying around me. And a lot of you have, have been just so encouraging to me. You've been pointing me back to God's word. And this is why I'm excited to be back in 1 Peter, because I needed to be reminded of the truth of 1 Peter, which some of you so gently put, pointed me back to, okay? I needed to know some of these truths that we've been learning about in 1 Peter, that we can have hope in hardships, right? That's one of the themes of 1 Peter, that we can have hope in hardships. And that as Christians, we don't just pursue holiness and endure hardships, but many times we pursue holiness by enduring hardships, right? And then we also learn in 1 Peter that we have such a good God that many times he takes our hardships, turns them into blessings, and fills them with meaning. And so I have been experiencing that Firsthand, while things have been a little hard and different at home and, and, and I'm, every step has been a little uncertain because of the spinning, it has also just been so good. God has turned it into blessings as well. And so I'm excited to be back into First Peter. Today, we are going to see how our lives can give glory to God while living in a hostile world, okay? So look at First Peter 2. We are in verse 11. First Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter reminds us that we are exiles, right? He, he opened up the letter of 1 Peter calling believers elect exiles. He's reminding us that as Christians, we are sojourners, we are refugees, we are outsiders because we know our true citizenship is in heaven. And so we are to live here as temporary residents in a foreign place, okay? We are exiles here. We are temporary residents here. Therefore, we should not be surprised when we are mistreated, looked down upon, treated as an outsider, or feel like we don't belong. 
Because we also know in Christ we do belong. And so at the the start of 1 Peter, he calls us elect exiles, meaning that we are chosen, adopted, called out, and placed into a new family of God. We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. So let me remind you, we are exiles. We are elect exiles. And now here in verse 11, we see as temporary residents in a foreign place, we are to abstain or distance ourselves from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Wage war against our soul. That, that is some strong language, okay? I think we need to pause here and maybe just wake up a little bit as a church. These passions of the flesh are waging war against our soul. Well, first, let's, what are these passions of the flesh, okay? Which in the book of Galatians, Paul speaks a little bit more about the passions of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19. Just listen to these words. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, to name a few, okay? Those are a few, the passions of the flesh that are waging war, okay? And listen, these works of the flesh, they are not just trying to annoy you. They are not just trying to distract you. They are not just trying to frustrate you. They are warring against your soul. They are trying to destroy you, harm you, overtake you, and kill you. And some of us live complacent, comfortable lives, naive to the fact that there's even a war going on at all. I mean, if you look at the typical American Christian life, it is lived out like it is peacetime, not wartime. So we need to wake up, church. We are exiles, and in regards to our hearts, it is not peacetime. It is wartime. And some of you are losing battles to sin because you don't even realize there's a battle going on. And may our passage this morning remind us that these passions, these sins, are warring against our souls. And in turn, we must make war on them. John Owen, in his book, Mortification of Sin and Believers, writes, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now, to wage war against sin, we're going to need to have a good defense, we're going to need to have a good offense, and we're going to need to know our weapons of war. Because this is not a war that is fought with guns or bombs or swords, for we know from 2 Corinthians 10 that we are not waging a war according to the flesh, but that our weapons of warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds, okay? So in regard to our defensive strategy in war, we know in Romans 13, 14, it says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So if you struggle with lust, you should probably have a good defense in your home and set up either internet filters or good accountability, all right? If you struggle with gluttony, you probably need to not have junk food just laying around. You need to set up a good defense and make no provision for the flesh. If you struggle with jealousy, you probably should not go on Facebook very often, right? If you struggle with idolatry, you probably should get rid of the things that you are prone to idolatry. 
compartmentalize, okay? We need to set up a defensive strategy and make no provision for the flesh. Well, we then need to gear up for war, okay? And Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the armor of God. We won't turn there right now due to time, but it talks about putting on the armor of God, all right? We are to put on the belt of truth, or we are to surround ourselves with truth, right? We then put on the breastplate of righteousness, which we know and reminded of the gospel that we put on the righteousness of Christ. And then we are to put on shoes that are ready to take the gospel to the world. We hold up our shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, and all the while we are to be praying at all times. We need to gear up for war. And I know some of you with high testosterone levels, you probably hear all this war talk and battle talk, and it gets you really fired up. You're probably going to go home today and watch Braveheart or Gladiator and eat some bacon and just be ready to start killing things, okay? And if that is you, I mean, go with that, okay? I mean, take that passion and just channel it towards something productive, killing your sin, okay? Go for that. But maybe others of you, this talk of war actually frightens you and causes you to be a little timid and fearful, like, whoa, 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 war. Like, I don't think I'm strong enough for war. Is there a desk job in God's army I can apply for? Like, don't put me on the front lines. I'm not ready for war. And if that is you, listen, church, yes, we do have an enemy, Satan, sin, and death, but listen, we have a defeated and a disarmed enemy. Colossians 2.15, talking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Our enemy's head has been crushed, and we know that victory has been obtained by the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we read in Revelation 12:11, speaking of God's people, says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So yes, we have an enemy, but it is a defeated and disarmed enemy. Nonetheless, we are to make war, And we are to do this in community alongside one another, and we are to make war on the sinful desires in our hearts. And parents, let me talk to you a little bit specifically this morning, okay? Because I believe there is a common misunderstanding in how we view protecting our kids, Because many well-intentioned followers of Jesus who have kids raise their kids with a false understanding as to what is actually warring against their kids' souls. We first think that the biggest threat to our kids is out there, right? It's the world out there. Let's shelter them from the world. Let's let's guard them, protect from what we're allowing to come in. And that's, that's not a bad thought or desire. You should be doing that. You should be protecting them and, and being wise on what you are allowing into your home. Definitely, definitely be doing that. Okay, don't hear me say that. But the biggest threat to your kids is their own hearts, and it is the passions of their flesh that are warring against their souls. 
And this is a side note. I want to give you a little bit of a glimpse into what gets me fired up, okay? You'll, you'll hear me talk a lot about why I believe many young people have left the church. I've even brought that up in some sermons in the past here. The reason I bring it up so much is be, because I believe that part of the calling God has placed on my life as an under-shepherd and a pastor is to go get the sheep that have wandered away, And so all the millennials that graduated youth group and left the church never to return again, I believe part of the calling God has placed on my life is to go after them. And I do believe that many will come back, and I believe many will even fill this church as their hearts are reawakened to the goodness of God through the proclamation of his word. Okay, so that's why you will hear me talk about that so often, okay? But to get back on track, I believe there are a lot of reasons young people have left the church, but one reason is because I believe parents have settled for their kids just having good morals or just being well-behaved, polite kids who have a good report card, who don't smoke or drink or do drugs. And we have settled for that thinking that our job as parents is done and we've accomplished that. And we never realized that what they actually primarily needed was for us to help them declare war on the sinfulness in their heart. So people of God, we can give glory to God while living in a hostile world by declaring war on the sin in our hearts. And parents, we can give glory to God as well by helping our kids do the same. Now, while we are to war against the passions of our flesh, we are not to war against others. We are not to be revolutionaries making war against those that might be mistreating or persecuting us, right? No, God shows us that we must, war, we must not war against them, but instead submit to them and do good to them. Look now at verse 12. And I realize we've only covered one verse so far, and everyone's getting a little nervous as to how long this sermon's going to be. But we're going to move quicker through this last section, because next week we're going to revisit some of this same topic of submitting to others when we get to chapter 3, okay? All right, so everyone will be okay. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People of God, we can give glory to God while living in a hostile world by declaring war on the sin in our hearts. But we are not to declare war on the world around us. We are not to treat the world around us like our enemy. We are not to war against the government, however corrupt or imperfect it might be. We war against the sin in our hearts, but we submit and do good to the world around us. And being part of God's family and being part of God's kingdom means we respond differently than the rest of the world does when bad things are spoken about us or when we are mistreated or when people bring up false charges against us. We don't respond by defending ourselves. We don't retaliate and we don't go to war with our words. No, God's way for his people to silence the ignorance of foolish people is to do good to them and submit to them. 
And so while we are warring against the sin in our hearts, we are not warring against our enemies or those in authority over us. We are doing good to them and we are submitting to them. And by doing this, it is God's way of making his gracious love visible to the world. We are to submit to our governing authorities. Peter is not calling for anarchy or a revolution to overthrow the government, which some, when he was writing this, misunderstood, okay? Here the apostles are teaching that Jesus is the true king, and people are submitting to the lordship and the kingship of Christ, and and now they are saying, well, should we overthrow the kings that are ruling over us since Jesus is king? And Peter is saying, no, Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, So Peter says, while Jesus is the true king, we are to submit to the authorities over us for his sake, with the understanding that these governing authorities were placed and put in their position by God. And Paul agrees with this in Romans. We see in Romans 13, verse 1, he writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. For the Lord's sake, we are to submit to the authorities he has put over us, which is our government, our bosses, our parents, our pastors and elders and church leaders. These are authorities that God has put into place for his glory and our good. But this should then raise the question, do we always submit to our authorities? I mean, 100% of the time, thinking through the Bible and thinking through church history, I mean, there is example after example of God's people disobeying the authorities that God placed over them. So when are the people of God allowed to disobey the authorities placed over them? Well, after World War II, during the Nuremberg trials, the lawyers for the Nazi war criminals tried to defend their Nazi soldiers and officers by saying that they were just obeying orders. They were just being good citizens. They were just submitting to the governing authorities over them. And therefore, they shouldn't be responsible for their crimes. They were just doing what they were told. And one of the judges beautifully responded with this. He said, but gentlemen... Is there not a law above our laws? Is there not a law above our laws? Or listen to how Peter responded in the book of Acts in 529. He said, we must obey God rather than men. The people of God are to submit to the authorities over us by God unless obeying those authorities would cause us to sin and then we must realize there is a law above our laws and we must obey God rather than men. Look back at 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Living as servants of God. The word servant in the Greek is doulos, which is used approximately 124 times in the New Testament, and it means slave. Now, in our English translations, it many times is translated servant or bond servant because we have so many negative connotations with the word slave. 
but let's try to press into what it means to be a slave so we can have a proper understanding of what our relationship to God is and why the Bible would call us to be slaves to God or slaves of Christ. I mean, Paul opened up many of his letters. You'll read in our English translation, Paul, a servant of Christ. Many times that word servant is doulos, Paul, a slave of Christ. Why would he write a slave of Christ? Why would he call us to be slaves of God that does not sit right initially with us, okay? Well, the definition of slave is someone who belongs to another. Someone who belongs to another. And let's talk a little bit about slavery in the Greco-Roman world during the time that this was written, okay? In the Greco-Roman world, there definitely was some mistreatment of slaves. However, there were a lot of slaves that were treated well. And there are many differences between slavery then and what slavery looked like in America. Now, side note, this passage and nowhere in the Bible does it ever condone slavery. People owning other people is never condoned by the Bible. It was never a part of the created order. But Peter is writing this letter, being a realist here, he's writing to a culture that slavery does exist and slaves and servants are becoming Christians and he's now trying to help them see how they are to live out their faith in their current situation. It's also important to note that slavery during this time was never based on race, okay? People became slaves either by their nation being conquered by another nation, or they were born into slavery, or some even sold themselves into slavery due to financial hardships. And these were not just unskilled or uneducated laborers. Many times they were well-educated. These were doctors and teachers and musicians, or they had other valuable skills. And there was much Roman legislation that even uh, monitored how you were to treat slaves. And a slave at that time could even have some status and some honor. But it was all dependent upon who their master was. So a slave in Caesar's household was highly thought of and honored, not because of anything in and of themselves, but because of who they belonged to. And so while hearing that we are slaves of God initially caused us to not be that excited about that relationship, right? When we understand that it means we belong to him, we are absolutely dependent upon him. And we know that he is not a cruel or oppressive Lord, but he actually calls us sons and daughters and adopts us into the family and calls us co-heirs of an eternal inheritance. And then we know that we, we have no honor or glory in and of themselves, but we have the honor and glory that comes from belonging to him. And so calling us slaves of God does help capture that imagery of our total reliance and dependence on God. And it is a beautiful thing to belong to God. Peter also calls us slaves of God because he knows that every human being is a slave to something. Paul says in Romans 6, 16, he says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And then in uh, 6.22 of Romans, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. 
We were slaves to sin. Whether you realized it or not, before you trusted in Christ, you were a slave to sin. And when you belong to sin, sin oppresses you. But praise be to God, when you belong to God, God frees you. Belonging to God, being a slave to God, is not an oppressive thing. It is freeing. Well, how can this be? I mean, look, look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 16. It says, Peter says, live as people who are free as slaves of God. Uh, what was that? Live as people who are free as slaves of God. How can we be free but be slaves of God? And I think part of the problem is we have a misunderstanding of what freedom is. We think freedom is being able to be whoever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. I would suggest to you this morning that true freedom and the freedom that the Bible speaks of is not necessarily just being able to be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do, but true freedom is being able to be who you were created to be and do what you were created to do. Let me read to you from Scott Christensen's book, What About Free Will, which I would highly recommend the book, by the way, but he writes this about true freedom. He says, true freedom is not found in freedom from God's wills and norms, but in submission to them. In the power of Christ, we are justified, but we are also empowered to follow the Spirit and grow in conformity to God's will. So listen to this progression of humanity. In Eden, Adam was able to sin. After the fall, he was not able not to sin, right? After sin entered the world, we were born with a sin nature. We were not able not to sin. After conversion, we are able to sin and able not to sin, right? We are now new creations. We have new hearts. The, the power and the penalty of sin has been lifted, but its presence still remains. So we have, we have the ability to now sin and not to sin. In heaven, we will not be able to sin. I mean, praise God, isn't that beautiful? There's not gonna be sinning in heaven, okay? We're not gonna be able to. The highest freedom is found in the latter state. When the day comes and we are finally with the Lord in glory, we will finally experience the fullness of freedom. On that day, we will discover that true freedom consists in being perfectly conformed to the will of God and never choosing to sin again. We will never choose to sin because we cannot desire it. And we cannot desire it because the Lord has changed our natures so that they are perfectly holy and righteous. We should long for that glorious day. We think freedom is being able to be whoever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. True freedom is being set free from the oppression of sin and being able to be who we were created to be and do what we were created to do. True freedom consists in being perfectly conformed to the will of God. Look back at 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We first see Peter ranks the importance of our relationships, right? I mean, he says, honor everyone, including the emperor, right? Everyone deserves us to honor. We should honor everyone. But even more than that, we should have a deep and loving affection for fellow believers. And then even above that, we are to fear God. And we've already talked a little bit about fearing God in 1 Peter a couple weeks ago. We talked about how a healthy fear of God quenches all the other fears in our lives. And that we were made to fear God and live life and not live without God and fear life, okay? But then Peter then exhorts us as believers, as ones who belong to God, to respond differently when we are mistreated, beaten, or suffer injustices. Now, I say he calls us to respond differently because what is the normal way we respond when someone wrongs us? We want to take justice into our own hands. And many times that plays out either through retaliating or through resenting, okay? We either retaliate and try to get even on someone or back for how they have wronged us, or if we can't retaliate, we turn to resentment and build up bitterness in our heart towards them and wish them harm. And so when a wrong is committed, we want justice, we take it into our hands, we either retaliate or we resent. But Peter is saying, there's a better way. You're about to hear some good news, church. You don't have to live like that. There is a better way. Belonging to God is a life of freedom, and there is a better way to handle all of the injustices in the world. He is saying, look to the example that Jesus set for us. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word entrusting here means handing over. How do we not retaliate? or resent when we are wronged, we hand it over to God the just. The commands of God are rooted in and overflow from the character of God. Because listen, this is not an easy command. Go suffer mistreatment, you're gonna get wronged, you're gonna be persecuted, and just somehow be okay with it, right? But the reason we can do this is that the power to do this is rooted in the character of God. And we know that God is a just God. So we hand over the injustice done to us, and we hand it over to our great God, who is a just 
God. We know that he will right all wrongs because that is who he is. He will right all wrongs. That is who he is. That is his character. So listen, that desire you have to want justice, it is a desire that all humanity has. I mean, that's why we have CSI whatever it's on now, right? I don't know. It's probably coming to Franklin soon. We've run out of cities, okay? But that is why all humanity has a desire for justice. Why? Because we were created in the image of God, in the image of a just God. But the weight and the responsibility of righting all wrongs in the world, it is not on you. You can be free from that. That weight is not on you. We hand it over to God who is just, and we know that all sin will be dealt with. It will either be dealt with in eternal judgment or it was dealt with on the cross, but either way, all sin gets dealt with. And some of you have had horrific, grievous, awful sins committed against you. You didn't deserve it. You were abused, you were mistreated, you were wronged, you were lied about. But church, you do not have to let bitterness and resentment rot your heart. Because in Christ, you are not a victim, you are a victor. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In Christ, you are not a victim. You are a victor, so hand it over to God and trust that he will right all wrongs. And so when injustice comes against us, we look to the cross and we remember that God is just and all injustices will be dealt with. And when our wounds seem too deep to heal, we look to our sinless Savior and remember that his wounds heal our wounds. And when our sin wars against our soul and seems like it will never be defeated, we look to our victorious King who is victorious in our place. And we celebrate the union with Christ who bore our our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And when we feel that we have strayed so far from God that we can never find our way back, we look to our good shepherd who does not lose any sheep. And in our foolish pursuit of freedom, we have found ourselves oppressed, but our Redeemer bought us back with his precious blood. And church, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Jesus has freed us from having to take justice into our own hands. And so by living humble lives that submit to authority, and when we are wronged, we don't retaliate, but we trust God that he will be the one to right all wrongs. When we do this, when we live like this, it will proclaim the excellencies of God to the world. There is so much fruit that comes from the suffering, persecution, and hardships of God's people. And in this series in 1 Peter, we're always talking about how God many times takes our hardships, turns them into blessings, fills them with meaning. And one way this happens is that when we experience 
undeserved mistreatment and persecution, it provides a platform for us to proclaim the undeserved favor and grace we have in Christ. Let me say that again. The undeserved mistreatment and persecution that we face, it provides us a platform to proclaim the undeserved undeserved favor and grace that we have in Christ. In 1948, in Korea, a band of communists had taken control of a town for a brief period. And while it had control of the town, it executed a Christian pastor's two oldest boys. The boys died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were eventually driven out, a young man of the village was identified as the one who had fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. The pastor requested that the charges be dropped and that the young man be released into his custody for adoption. The court agreed to release him, and he became the son of the pastor, and he became a believer in the grace of Jesus because he saw and experienced it firsthand. God's way of making his gracious love visible to the world many times comes through his people following Jesus' example, suffering injustice, submitting to corrupt authority, and handing over their lives to the one we trust will right all wrongs. Church, you belong to God. Your freedom was purchased by his blood. And we can give glory to God while living in a hostile world by making war on the sin in our heart and enduring injustices and wrongs committed against us because we trust that God is just. And in Christ, we are not victims. We are victors. And may the undeserved mistreatment and persecution we experience only provide us a platform to proclaim the undeserved favor and grace we have in Christ. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your undeserved favor on us. Lord, we thank you for showing us your gracious love to us and giving us an example to follow. Jesus, give us the courage and the strength to follow after you, to endure hardships and mistreatment. But Lord, I ask that you would guard against any of us retaliating or building up resentment or bitterness. And I ask that, Lord, if there are roots of bitterness in people's hearts this morning, that you would reveal that to them, that they would repent and confess those to you, and, Lord, that they would hand it over to you, knowing that you are a just God. We ask all this in Jesus' name.